The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it's been said that managing the rise of China is one of the most significant international relations challenges of the 21st century, confronting not just the United States, Europe, and the big powers, but all countries around the world. Uh, this is a transformative period of history beyond the fact that we're in this uh, unprecedented uh, COVID-19 era, and China's role in all of this, for better and for worse, is transformational. The problem, though, and this is something you and I have talked about over the years, is that a comprehensive, nuanced understanding of what China is doing in places like Africa is still woefully lacking. And we've talked about this in previous shows, Cobus, where we've said that China has now no longer an Africa policy, but China now has Nigeria, South Africa, Malawian, Kenyan expertise. But too often in Africa, they just look at China and or Asia, or they don't actually expert, have too much expertise in it. It's also prominent in the United States. And this is very interesting because we've been talking about great power competition a lot on the show for the past couple of weeks. Uh, let me give you an example. Just last week on July 14th, there was a press briefing by the CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Uh, his name is Adam Bowler. Uh, and he was talking about investments in Africa and global health. And let me give you a quote, and this will set up our conversation today. He said, we get a lot of questions all the time. How do you compare to China? China's investing in Africa all the time. And my point here is, we're not going to send a thousand Americans over there to complete a project. We want to empower your local workforce. He was talking about Africans. We're not going to invest in any shoddy infrastructure. We're not investing in debt traps. There it is, Cobus, debt traps. It is not about undue American influence. People tried that. That's called colonialism. And the reason why I think this quote is very, very interesting is because that could have been said 15 years ago by Hillary Clinton when she was in Africa or Assistant Secretary of State Johnny Carson. And it shows you that the understanding of China in Africa in the United States government, and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has been saying similar things for a long time, has simply not evolved. And the understanding it really lacks so much nuance and texture that's needed. So if going back to managing the rise of China is truly one of the significant challenges, the fact that the language and the understanding of what China's doing, not just in Africa, but also in the Middle East, South America, and other parts of the Global South, is lacking. Yes, it's, it's, it is problematic. I think, you know, China is a game changer in many respects. And one of the respects is that it's changing kind of ways that that great powers do business with with other countries um or it's changing the, the 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 way that power is exchanged and the way that power is understood um and so you know it's it's really important to to look at the at everything china is doing um in a place like africa not only the hard power stuff not only the trade and investment um or the military engagement but also 
everything they're doing, and particularly the way that they maintain their position in 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 the, those areas, including the kind of relationships that they build in order to 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 facilitate the flow of power. And so understanding this concept of the relationships and the approach to power that the Chinese are doing is absolutely essential. And that's the kind of rhetoric that is missing in stakeholders like Adam Bowler's comments. And for that, we have a very new contribution to the discourse that is fresh off the press, right, coming out. Uh, as we record on Wednesday, July 22nd, the books are now being shipped all over the world, uh, Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-Africa Relations. Uh, it's written by Lina Ben-Abdallah, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Wake Forest University in the great state of North Carolina. Go Demon Deacons! She's also a non-resident senior associate in the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Good morning, Lena. Welcome back to the show. And more importantly, congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me again. It's uh, really a pleasure to be back with you and uh, Cobus to discuss it. It's great. Uh, and listen, I'll, I'll do, we're going to do some log rolling for you on the book. The most important thing is that you can actually go out right now and buy the book on Amazon. Uh, believe it or not, this is, and I joke with Cobus all the time about this, academic books are usually absurdly priced. Okay, so I'm advising everybody to stay away from the hardcover book because it's 80 bucks. But the paperback and the Kindle editions are actually reasonably priced at a modest $29.95, which for a scholarly book is crazy cheap. So we'll get to promoting the book, but I just, that stood out to me as something very exciting that it's actually an accessible book. I had a chance to read a preview edition uh, that you graciously sent me before the show. I want to start out our conversation by reading a few points from the book because I think this is what set it up. So I'll be reading from this, and it says, uh, analyzing China-Africa relations, and this is what you write, Lena, should shift away from focusing on the material manifestations of power dynamics in China's Africa policy, such as natural resources, extraction, and financial investments. It is important to start looking at less visible and less material types of investments in social relations, network expansion, and human capital. You then go on to write, in order to fully understand China's foreign policy towards African states, its importance in global politics, one certainly needs to look at the financial figures, the foreign aid levels, and foreign direct investments, but those material factors and the capabilities that they reflect are not the whole story. So if they're not the whole story, and that's oftentimes how we in the outside measure Chinese engagement in Africa by trade, by the number of military bases, the number of peacekeeping soldiers, all of those hard metrics, what actually is the whole story? Yes, uh, thank you for this, um, Eric. So basically, the entire argument is based on trying to add to the literature on China-Africa that has, uh, in the past over a decade, uh, looked at these investments that the Chinese government, Chinese companies, state-owned enterprises uh, have in Africa from the perspective of natural resources, from the perspective of building infrastructure, construction projects, um, loans, finances, but at the same time, uh, based on sort of observations I have uh, seen uh, during uh, fieldwork trips and research, uh, it, it just almost looked like there was a whole other set of infrastructure. And it's an infrastructure that's not uh, cement um, bridges, but it's relational bridges, it's networks, it's a, 
a network of relations that are spun and tied between uh, Chinese elites uh, and their African counterparts, Chinese uh, academics and their African counterparts, uh, um, uh, uh, Chinese civil government officials and their African counterparts, etc. And it was really interesting to me to uh, ask that question. So what does this tell us about the operations you know, of China, a Chinese government, the Chinese state uh, in Africa and also beyond. And so it was really important for me to ask this question. And oftentimes it's a question that doesn't get looked at because it's a difficult question, because you can't measure it, because it's really difficult to see. You don't have an Excel sheet that can tell you the, the you know, the, the total volume trade of 2019 and you compare it to 2009 and you have a really good sort of straightforward uh, uh, story to tell. Uh, when you're looking at these relationships, when you're looking at the network aspect of, uh, uh, of the relations here, it's really, it's it's challenging because, precisely because it's not tangible, precisely because it's difficult to measure. So you really have to go uh, at length into really trying to capture it by uh, examining different, uh, you know, cases and, 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 and interviewing people and doing a lot of uh, field-based research uh, to, to, to get that. So one one of the key aspects that you focus on um, in this relationship building is training. Um, so training and skills transfer is a, is a big part of the China-Africa relationship, but it's one that's not, that's actually not very well known or very well understood, I think, in the, in the broader China-Africa community. Um, can you give us an idea of roughly what the scale is of, of the training that you discuss? In general, when we talk about trainings, there are two different types. There are two different categories of trainings. Um, there is the kind that's uh, sponsored by the Chinese uh, uh, government, usually announced at FOCAC. Um, uh, at the forum, typically, there will be announcements of government scholarships that are paid for and provided by the, by the Chinese government. But the, the second category is another form of training, which is usually provided by Chinese companies, typically on the ground. So this would be your Huawei or ZTE training um, local labor force to work at the Chinese company. And so in the book, I focus on the former, not the latter. So I focus on these sort of government to government scholarships and trainings. And when we look at the when we look at the scale or the scope, uh, I mean, of course, by now we have seen a lot of uh, data coming out to say uh, uh, just more, more, most recently um, UNESCO had a report that basically shows that um, China has now officially sort of become the largest destination for um, African students. And a lot of that is on scholarships that are paid for by the Chinese government. So we see more and more sort of these data that show that um, at the level that it is today, China is topping the lists uh, when it comes to destinations for these um, trainings and scholarships. And so when, uh, to give you a, a sort of a, a quick comparison, just looking at FOCAC 2015, um, uh, the uh, agenda announced that the Chinese government was going to sponsor 30,000 scholarships uh, and provide 2,000 educational opportunities. Um, and in 2018, that number has changed to 50,000 government scholarships and also announced 50,000 seminars and workshops and invited 2,000 African youths and sort of 
you know, and you merge this with the Belt and Road Initiative, you see that these initiatives are only increasing. So the scope and the scale of it, um, you know, are increasing. And uh, uh, these seminars uh, are basically about different topics from traditional medicine to uh, corruption to governance to um, essentially almost every topic that you can think of. They, 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 they are inviting uh, or targeting government officials, civil servants from African countries, uh, from different ministries, from um, media departments, agriculture departments, from different uh, ministries. And typically what the seminars are is they, they are about sometimes a week, 10 days, two weeks long. Um, and it's really interesting because we sometimes will hear the number, but it's it, it's not really captured in what exactly is China doing in Africa. And so my attempt is at looking at these uh, trainings and seminars, workshops to unpack what goes on in these trainings, what happens, what are the effects and, and impacts of these uh, ever increasing uh, training opportunities that are sponsored by the Chinese government for for Africans. You know, I had heard that the Chinese had been doing a lot of these trainings. I remember when you were writing about at the last FOCAC. FOCAC, for those of you not familiar, is the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. It's the summit that happens every three years. Next year, it will be presumably held in Senegal. But it's the time when everybody kind of gets together to talk about the entire China-Africa agenda. And as part of that, in the last FOCAC in Beijing... There was, there was a think tank forum, a military affairs forum, there was a media forum, and all these African journalists kind of came over. In your book, you quoted the number 63,000 African professionals received professional training in China, and that number just blew me away. It just seemed, you know, huge. And then, again, and I, didn't, I don't have anything to compare it against, so is that a larger number than, say, what the United States or the European Union does for their professional trainings? Can you give us some context of how it compares with, say, other countries or groupings like the European Union? Yeah, it's a very good question. And it's, it's, it's both important to compare it to what China is doing or has been doing in Africa in the last 10 years and also compare it sort of inside and outside. So compare it to other powers, but also compare it to what China is, the trajectory of China-Africa relations itself. And so that comparison a little bit easier because you go back to FOCAC 2009 or FOCAC 2012 and the numbers are not anywhere near there. Um, and what's really interesting about FOCAC 2018 as well is when you look at sort of the comparison between FOCAC 2018 and 15, you sort of see that there is a little bit of the, the preferential and concession, concessional loans, for instance, that envelope has shrinked uh, over the, 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 the last three years. But um, the envelope or the investments in um, these professional trainings has actually doubled. So it's really interesting to just compare it with it inside already, just to see um, over the years, what this tells us about the China-Africa trajectory and the story of China-Africa relations, but also comparing it outside and looking at uh, the report that I mentioned earlier, the UNESCO report talking about scholarships, it actually didn't have the US ranked anywhere near the top 10 and near the top, I think I've looked at six or seven top countries providing scholarships. The U.S. wasn't anywhere near there, um, and so you get you get I think Germany, you get India. Uh, we typically sometimes see Turkey as well, sort of reemerging as a government that is more and more interested in sponsoring these 
scholarships and and trainings for 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 Africans. But um, there is a, a a new picture when we look at sort of the top ten uh, uh, providing uh, states. Here we see it's not the usual typical story or classic story of. Uh, Africa's international relations or foreign relations, which is usually dominated by Eurocentric or European US kind of uh, powers. This is a different picture. Like I mentioned, India and Turkey and um, and definitely China. Um, and so when you compare it, you see that uh, there is a decrease. There is an, an, a downward trajectory of scholarships provided by uh, European countries and an onward one, upward trajectory for these scholarships that are provided. So there's an, uh, a kind of an, uh, almost a, an, an interest in making Chinese universities and Chinese institutions sort of attractive uh, destinations for Africans to get degrees and to get, and the other way around, there's a sense of closing up uh, from, you know, European or countries or the US. Um, it's really interesting also to mention that uh, when we're doing these comparisons, you know, Russia uh, uh, comes up and especially when we're looking historically speaking, the the Soviet Union um, in the past has had uh, these trainings as a, a huge pillar in Soviet Union's foreign policy in Africa, which is to say right in the 60s uh, uh, and, and, and uh, 70s, as a lot of African countries had just had uh, gotten their independence from colonial powers, there was a need to train the elites. There was a need to get teachers and get doctors and 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 train a whole uh, set of, of 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 elites. And the Soviet Union was providing a lot of that. And so you know, it's very common to have had a teacher from ex Yugoslavia or a doctor from um, uh, uh, Soviet Union. So it's not just that you know the Soviet Union that used to do these. Um, provide these trainings and used to do these um, uh, scholarships and um, as, as part of the, uh, their foreign relations. It's not a Chinese thing either. It's not unique to China. But um, it definitely when we compare the scopes and the scale of it, um, we see that the, by numbers, sort of China is both providing the largest, but also having a very fast uh, increase pace over the years. So, you know, there's this rapid increase in, in skills transfer from one folk act to the other um, was is really interesting for me. And I've, I've wondered about that in the past. And, to, and, um, and I'd like to ask you, to which extent do you think this was pushed by China? To, and to which extent does it reflect, you know, kind of um, agency on the African side in demanding more of what they want from China. Um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, it, it, it and does it then kind of um, work as a kind of a cooperative relationship where everyone is really getting what they want? And also then, you know, kind of in the in the wider sense, how does it compare to, um, to China's relationship to the rest of the global South? Is Africa a special case there or is it, was this also true for the Caribbean or South America and so on? In terms of agency, um, you know, almost everyone I interviewed who attended some form of um, Chinese government-sponsored training, um, you know, had positive impressions, if not of uh, the content of the training itself, the experience overall. And, you know, the experience includes essentially getting to, to, to explore and, and to experience China firsthand for a lot of these civil servants and a lot of 
um, you know, these students and journalists, if you don't get the chance to go to China and see it for your own, chances are what you know about China is filtered through other media sources. And chances are, if you're from Algeria, for instance, that media source is going to be France 24 or some uh, uh, French slash European media perspective. And so um, in a lot of my interviews, this comes up, sort of this, you know, being impressed with how China has, you know, just in the last 30, 40 years has, has come so far away. And that impact, that's, you know, a lasting impact that uh, uh, comes back in the interviews and in the conversations with civil servants um, is a very positive one from their sense, and but but also it's a win-win from the as well from the Chinese sense because it it basically shows a China model. It shows a a a a, a product, a development story that China can tell that a lot of Africans want to hear about. They want to know about. They want to learn about, and they are impressed when they actually see it. So a lot of times these trainings involve you know, guided tours, they are not necessarily spontaneous or, you know, open, they are very much curated tours, but they, they, they serve the purpose of telling the story, of showing everyone who comes to visit, you know, look how far Shanghai has come, look how far these big cities have come. And that leaves a very positive impact. And it's an aspiration, it's a message of hope, it's a message of, look, it can be done. And, and it's a very important and powerful one. You know, when it comes to agency, in many ways, a lot of African elites want to see that. They want their colleagues and, 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 and everyone to, to be able to see and learn from this experience. So on their end, yeah, they want more of these trainings. They want more of these reports with Chinese government officials and Chinese civil servants to, 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 to get to know how is this done. Um, you know, some of the nitty gritty sort of feedback uh, I, I, I was you know, learning about from interviews would be every so often you get the idea that the content of some of these trainings is completely not relevant. It's not useful or not helpful or maybe the language barrier is too big or so you get feedback constantly from attendees, from participants. But the feedback isn't to say don't have these meetings It's to say make it a little bit better or tailor it so that it, you know, it fits more with the context of, you know, whatever the civil servants are coming from. And so it's really important to see overall the power relations, uh, as you mentioned there, whether it's win-win. I mean, you know, in my view, and of course, uh, I think very um, uh, reasonably uh, thinking, you know, power relations here is, 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 is difficult to speak about sort of equal power relations or the similar win-win relations when you have a state that provides all of these trainings and several states that essentially partake in these trainings. But at the same time, this isn't to say that there is, um, you know, absolutely no agency or nothing to gain uh, from, from sort of from the African side. Where, where Africa fits in this for, for China is basically, in many ways, Chinese foreign policy towards, for instance, uh, uh, South America, 
kind of mimics or improves on or starts with a lot of programs that Chinese government sort of experiments with in its relationship to African countries. And so, yeah, there are trainings that are provided to um, South American uh, civil servants. Um, they are not to the scale or scope that you see uh, is provided for Africans, but they are also increasing. Um, and of course, now there is as well a forum that's basically a, a, a spring off uh, FOCAC that is uh, for South American countries. And typically, those are the platforms that announce these scholarships. Uh, so even if they are at a, a lower, smaller scale, um, than they are in Africa, we see also an increase in the same pattern coming to South um, America and other places. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So if agency is not necessarily the right paradigm to be talking about these trainings, it, you do mention the fact that this is an asymmetrical relationship and that there is a real missed opportunity on the Chinese side who conducts these trainings when they have all of these Africans coming over, uh, it really feels like, uh, according to you and what you're, you're finding in your research, that it was a one-way affair, that it was the Chinese telling Africans about their experience, but the Chinese themselves were never taking advantage of the opportunity to listen to the various African stakeholders about their insights on journalism, infectious diseases, on education, on all the different areas that, that are going on. It's, we're telling you, you listen, and we're not asking you about it. Talk to us a little bit about the one-way dynamic that exists in all of these trainings, and that seemed to be a theme that, go, that transcends all of the different areas that you talked about in your book, from education to journalism to military and to politics in general. Yeah, I think the one-way dynamic is very important to bring up, which is to say uh, there is so there is a there is a lot of listening. There's a feedback loop. There's a lot of talking to African elites about their needs when it comes to tailoring a Chinese product to an African market, uh, whether that product is norms or some model or a, a cell phone. There is that much listening when it leads to sort of direct market opening. But so the, the, the one way dynamic there that exists in these trainings is that we I have not heard of thousands of Chinese journalists come into Africa to spend, you know, two weeks. Maybe Kobus can tell us a bit about this because he knows a lot more about it. But to the scale, for instance, that we have African journalists going into uh, uh, China and also really attending Chinese universities. And so a lot of them, actually, it's not just the two week kind of quick uh, training sessions, but it, it's for degrees. It's you spend two years, you learn the language, you are really immersed in the culture and uh, you come out of it with a degree. So do we see that reciprocation? Do we see, for instance, you know, institutes of some cultural institutes of some, some form 
uh, being opened up in different uh, Chinese cities, like we see Confucius Institutes uh, basically growing in numbers when they are sort of closing in European countries and the US, they are opening up and growing in numbers in Africa. So, so these are the questions that I asked. So what does that tell us? So it is a one-way dynamic from this perspective that we don't see a whole lot of uh, you know, Chinese students coming to learn Amharic or coming to learn, you know, maybe Swahili a little bit. It's kind of like one of those flagship sort of languages. But we see, you know, thousands of African students going into China to sort of learn Mandarin and to uh, get degrees from universities. So, and 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 so it, it's an interesting question there to be asked. Um, do we see this reciprocation? Right? Are we as Africans sort of sharing our knowledge and expertise and know-how with Chinese counterparts? The answer to that is really not uh, the case. It's basically uh, there is an asymmetric relationship where you see there's, you know, sort of, I can't say really consuming uh, because I don't think that a lot of this knowledge, quote unquote, is very useful, like I said. There is, you know, the whole picture, the importance here is in the, in the network, in, you know, creating connections that are going to be lasting, that are going to be profitable for Chinese commerce, for Chinese companies down, down the line. Um, and that's, 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 that's basically why it's important to look at this one-way dynamic and to ask the question, do African countries or governments sort of provide similar, you know, training programs? No, they don't, right? Um, and why so? And that's that. That basically gets gets to the to the to the to the bottom line, which is about creating or investing in relationships, which is in my mind a characteristic and something um, that we have to look at in order to understand China's power or the operations and the approach of China to power in general. In relation to the to the language issue, you know, I, I completely agree. Like so, so many, so many um, African students go to to China to study Mandarin, and when Chinese students want to study African languages, major African languages like Hausa or you know or Isizulu or Kiswahili, they end up there are you know African language departments at Chinese universities, and they frequently study those, study those there. Um, you know, and, and Africa isn't really set up at the moment as kind of like center of of language education. You know, even though I think that could be very, very um, useful. Um, one of the one of the kinds of training that that you that you focus on is military training. Um, and in in speaking with um, with Western diplomats, frequently that's the one that that really draws their attention. You know, that's the one that they really want to hear about because you know they they don't want to hear <laughs> that they're not giving enough um, scholarships to African students. Even though I I'm the one who always keeps saying that. Um, they you know can, can you tell us a little bit about about the why does china spend so much money and energy on on this kind of military engagement and what what are they getting out of it yeah and they get a lot of it so eric earlier mentioned the um uh, one of the most recent um additions to china africa forum uh, diplomacy was the defense and security forum and the defense and so there were basically two editions of this defense and security forum um, and the usual um, uh, trend or pattern for it is that you have military or high-ranking military attaches from different African countries, 
going to China to attend uh, usually two weeks um, of a forum, mix of seminars, um, social time, um, visits to different facilities, etc. There was a statistic somewhere um, that I I point to uh, in the book, um, basically that says in almost every African country, there is at least a high-ranking military official that has had some form of training in China uh, at some point. And, you know, and that is um, very important because it makes very easy sort of the connection, for instance, when there is a um, need to buy military equipment or when there is need to discuss this sort of security questions, um, uh, uh, at the very base, um, you have an, a marketing strategy for Chinese armaments and military equipment, which is to say when when these military attaches are invited to China, when these people are trained in China, you know, they get to visit different facilities, they get to see the product, they get to see how they are, they function, etc. And the trainings are important because then they keep the maintenance, they keep, you know, we have a set of engineers and people who are able to go back and make sure that that people know how to operate um, the, the these products. And so keeping that momentum of relationship and keeping it constant is really important for sort of the service you provide, you know, 10 years, 15 years after you've provided the equipment. But the other thing that's really important as well is, you know, in a lot of scholarship and international relations, talking about what comes out of these trainings and port calls and, you know, Navy drills, etc., is a form of trust building that's really important to establish between different militaries and different navies and etc., and there is a huge uh, importance attached to these dr- drills, even though, you know, sometimes, you know, we just see it sort of as a photo op, you know, we see just the picture at the end of it, etc. But the exercise is really important because you, you almost have, you, 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 at the end of it, you sort of speak the same language in terms of, you know, what you view as a threat, how you respond to a threat, and all of these are really important. So, you know, by at the end of the day, if all of your port calls or trainings, or most of them anyway, the drills are made with Chinese counterparts, then you almost have, you harmonize the way that your uh, Navy or military operates with the way the Navy or the military operates on the Chinese side. And this is really important uh, because it just makes everything else sort of, you know, uh, uh, the way that even you conceptualize a threat or how you respond to it becomes something that's harmonized with, with that Navy or that military. or And this is why it's really important because, um, you know, because it takes a lot of years to do this. It takes a lot of time to build this trust and to build, um, you know, um, these collaborations. And it's not just a one-time deal where you just do a drill and then you don't do it again in, you know, 10 years uh, time. And in the Chinese, you know, on the Chinese side, there's there's this um, understanding that China is not viewed in Africa as a security partner. It's not viewed as a serious um, you know, um, security partner because it's mostly viewed as sort of an economic power. And we don't see, you know, Chinese boots on the ground, so to speak. And so the whole idea here is to be able to improve on China's security or at least increase China's security footprint in Africa without having that boots on the ground 
uh, effect that when you say U.S. military, um, you know, uh, brings up in people's minds. And one way to do that is through these trainings. They, they are completely immaterial in that sense. You really don't see much but they are they are there the, the the networks are essentially increasing and they are getting more and more dense um but you don't have that same sort of threatening view of a military that you have if it was you know more of the classic traditional um you know military presence which is to say drone bases or you know africom etc but i wonder if that perception is going to start changing soon uh, one of the the areas that we're following in our daily newsletter, and, and you might have seen this, uh, you know, when you read it, is the the growth in Chinese weapons procurement in Africa. So, for example, in Nigeria, CH three drones, which are becoming increasingly popular, the Nigerians have four of them. Uh, the Nigerians are buying a lot more Chinese weapons. We saw this also. Rwanda's buying more weapons from the Chinese Norinco, which is the Chinese state-owned arms uh, manufacturer, is doing pretty good business and accompanying. All, all those weapon sales comes training, comes support, and again, those relationships you're talking about. China is also the largest uh, provider of peacekeeping troops among the permanent five members of the United Nations Security Council, so the presence of UN peacekeepers is, is something that's quite prominent as well. Uh, we've seen uh, you know, evidence of greater military-to-military engagement just in this COVID-19 era. Uh, the PLA has been making donations to other to African militaries. Uh, to support their fight against uh, COVID in the troops. And I thought that was very interesting. And finally, in South Africa last year, uh, there was a couple high-profile trainings with Russians uh, that, that, that occurred in, in many ways trying to send, I think, a political message to the United States and Europe that South Africa has options and it's turning to the Chinese. Nobody really takes it seriously that China is going to be a major military partner of South Africa, but symbolically it did seem to have some currency. You interact quite a bit with U.S. stakeholders, particularly in Washington now, of course, through your new role with CSIS. I'm wondering when you have these conversations about the military-to-military relations, do people in the Beltway, in Washington, have an understanding? Because this is an area that AFRICOM, which is the American or the U.S. military presence in Africa, feels that it has long um, had dominance in terms of training. And I think it would come as a surprise to hear your findings and your research that the Chinese are also building these deep ties as well. What's the reaction when you talk to American stakeholders about this, uh, this issue of military training? I think uh, the um, the U.S. was having a lot of these conversations, I think, in, in, in several uh, congressional hearings about um, mi- like sort of military exchanges and military education. There's a, a sense in, in D.C. at least that these are really important. And there's a sense that the U.S. needs to get back to doing a lot of them. Um, and precisely because there is a waking up to understanding the extent to which um, you know, China is is um, doing a lot of this, and um, so just from my experience listening into the hearings and listening into these questions uh, with 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 Africom, um, you know, leadership, the, it's a question of budget again. Uh, usually, you know, the first thing that gets cut out of budgets is these educational. Uh, opportunities, whether they are for military, you know, officials or not, but usually these trainings are kind of viewed as kind of, you know, secondary or tangential, or they're, they usually are on the chopping block anytime and every time there is conversations about budgets. And 
time and time and time again now you see uh, AFRICOM staff essentially or leadership essentially trying to defend these educational trainings um, uh, military to military trainings as an important uh, part of uh, AFRICOM's mission um, and, and, and so I think there is more and more awareness uh, that um, these trainings are creating precisely the impact you said earlier which is that more African government elites are aware of a Chinese alternative, that there are more affordable and sometimes, you know, uh, highly uh, technologically capable um, uh, equipments and, and armaments and uh, that they can get from uh, China. And because of the trainings that, 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 that are provided, then they get to see how you know, what's available and how it works and learn how, how to operate it. Um, but it's really important also to say that we don't... Essentially, the trainings on the military side from China that, that you see in the China-Africa relations are very different. So EUTM, when you look at Mali, for instance, the European Union provides a lot of trainings for capacity building for the, for its, for, for the military, for the Malian military. Um, uh, and... Um, those trainings are usually on the ground in Mali. Some of them were in Europe, but a lot of them and more and more now are in Mali, where you have European military elites coming in to provide sometimes six months, sometimes three months training rotations to build capacity for the FAMA, for the military of, of, of uh, for the Malian army. And, uh, and that is for the specific of sort of counter-terrorism operations that the military is, 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 is doing in the country. You don't see at all the Chinese side providing any of that. Uh, so the trainings are very different. So the trainings usually on the, in the China-Africa relations, they take place in China. And they have sort of this marketing f flavor to them where you're brought in to... China um, essentially get to see and tour facilities and see a lot of other equipment and see how it works, etc. But the trainings on the European side and what the US as well is doing with, with, with the European partners is more on the ground providing capacity to the armies uh, for the purpose of whatever it is, counterterrorism in the case um, of, of, of FAMA. Um, this isn't something that we see China really be involved in. And when we, you speak to Malians, for instance, um, you know, when I was doing fieldwork in Bamako in December, I was talking to uh, FAMA uh, officials about this. Uh, they don't at all think that China is doing enough or, you know, or, or a con serious contestant in this um, topic of training and providing capacity building for militaries in the context of the conflict. Um, so, yeah, you get training, but usually in China. But do you think that's that's now for physical training? What about for, say, cyber warfare or in that space where the Chinese may have some expertise that they can bring to, 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 to African governments and African militaries. Do you think that's also the case the same way that it's not, it's being done in China and it's more hands-off? Yeah, it is usually done in China. Um, and even if, yeah, and I think it's both for, 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 it goes as well for cybersecurity. Although I haven't seen, I haven't seen much of that, uh, to be honest with you, the, 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 the places where I saw, 
people talk about sort of this cyber security trainings um, was um, in relationship to Huawei and, and whether Huawei is working with African governments to train African elites in, in, in sort of controlling, you know, internet for, you know, opposition oppression and, and, and all those things. But it, it was mostly in that capacity that I saw this come up. How successful do you feel has has all of this training seen seen from you know kind of across its broad scope? How successful is it in really creating a kind of a shared worldview between between Chinese you know kind of institutions, Chinese people, and and African institutions and people? It's a very uh, it's it's a very good question. I think it's the million dollar question. I mean. I think probably because it's a lot of these trainings um, have happened in just the last few years, we will be seeing a lot of the consequences and impacts and results over the years to come. But preliminary uh, uh, assessments show um, that essentially when, when, when it comes to basic kind of Chinese understanding that somehow the narrative of China Africa in, 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 in Africa is usually negative because this is how Western media, for instance, talk about it. Um, we see that there is a diversified narrative on China Africa relations today from when they were 10 years ago. And a lot of that diversified narrative comes from these opportunities to precisely these opportunities to make China known to the African military or the journalist or the student, um, uh, uh, which are the three cases that I've looked at in my book. And so far, to the extent that China is now more accessible and experienced in first-hand capacity by all of these elites, and we're talking thousands of them, it's a very successful story. Um, but that doesn't really mean that just by mere fact of going to attend a workshop, you've internalized some alternative story about history, for instance, or about whatever it is. So that remains to be something that we can look at later on. And in fact, preliminary um, sort of, you know, preliminary analyses show that it's a big mixed bag that just because you sort of go and get your degree in journalism in China doesn't really mean when you come back you're going to be a champion of some form of authoritarian or, you know, that's not the case at all. Um, and so this shared worldview is something that also China is figuring out for itself as well. So now we have this sort of, you know, common, you know, destiny um, narrative that we see through the Belt and Road Initiative but that is constantly changing as well. It's something that's still being figured out on the Chinese side. And as long as it's still being figured out on the Chinese side, it will also be different in China's and how it manifests in China's relations, whether it's with African countries or with Belt and Road countries more generally. Very quickly, what do you want people to take away from your book? Basically looking at China-Africa relations beyond what meets the eye, which is to say putting into context all of these networks that are being built and uh, 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 connections and relations between Chinese uh, government officials and militaries and journalists uh, and their African counterparts is really important. And even though it's not tangible, we can't really easily assess it and have a number on it. 
Um, they are important investments and they tell us a lot about the way that um, in what we expect to see out of China as it is becoming more and more of this sort of great power. What do we expect to see? So we have to understand how this power uh, manifests itself and how its power works in order to really understand what it's doing um, in Africa and beyond. The book is Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-Africa Relations. Just hit the, the stores right this week. So if you're listening to it now, you can go to Amazon. You can download the Kindle book. You probably can't go to a bookstore because they're all closed, but you can get the Kindle version at Amazon and in other places where you buy academic books. It's written by Lina Ben-Abdallah, who's an assistant professor at Wake Forest University. She's one of the leading China-Africa scholars in the world, also a non-resident senior associate at the Africa program with our good friend Judd Devermont at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Lena, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. I know a lot of people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days. And if so, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? Um, I think either um, email or on Twitter. And um, on Twitter, my handle is at L Benabdallah, uh, which is my last name. Um, and yeah, so I have a page for the book. Um, it's a website just called Shaping the Future of Power. And I have information about you know my contact um, on the contact page. Fantastic. We'll put links to both the, the book site and also to your Twitter account as well. We really thank you for taking the time. We're honored that we're the first interview on the new kind of book tour. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us and really share some of your fascinating insights. I can't recommend the book enough. Again, Shaping the Future of Power, Knowledge Production and Network Building in China-Africa Relations. Lena, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Eric and Kobus. It's my honor. Kobus, I want to take us back to the top of our discussion when I was quoting Adam Bowler from the Development Finance Corporation and the unsophisticated language that he was using about the Chinese. And again, it's hard to tell which audience he's targeting that language to. He is a, a Trump ally, so a lot of that might be for a domestic audience. But I think what's so critical here is listening to Lena is, again, the nuance, the complexity, and that's the challenge. And again, if you don't understand who you're talking about, and it's clear to me that people like Adam Bowler do not understand the Chinese and what they're doing in Africa, because again, they're using language that's 10, 15 years out of date. Uh, for me, they're incapable then of meeting the challenge of managing China's rise. And that's why this book from Lena to me is so important. So if you are tasked with understanding what the Chinese are doing in a place like Africa, to me, this also applies to the Middle East. Uh, South Asia, even here in Southeast Asia as well. Uh, this is what they're doing in Africa in some senses is being used in many parts of the world. Uh, these kinds of books are absolutely critical. You know, one of, the, one of the great things I think that Lena shows in her book is the strength of China's development narrative in places like Africa. You know, it's like the, the very thing of, of we used to be as poor as you are, we are now incredibly rich. This is how we did it. That is such a powerful, powerful story to tell in Africa, and 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 until the West realizes that that's not really a story they have to tell, that they can't make that claim among others because the West is now rich on among others because of exploitation of Africa itself. Until the West is actually clear about that and understands why why that story is so important, there's no way they can they can understand what what China is doing. 
And it's a form of soft power that I think the U.S. and Europe don't really fully understand. We still frame soft power in the Joseph Nye traditional context of media, culture, getting people to do things without having to force them to do things. Uh, that is a very 20th century definition of soft power. This development narrative that you're talking about is something that's new. And for the most part, again, I, I don't don't think that it's very well understood in the United States in particular. It's one of those things, and I think that's the power of what she was saying, that when people go to China and actually see it, when you are in Shanghai and you're looking up at the Bund and you're looking at Pudong, the scale of what's there is remarkable. Uh, and again, we can separate all the politics and, and some of the awful things that happen in China. And that's one of the things, I, a couple points that I was thought was missing from the book. Uh, number one, I would have liked to have seen more context. That is, the Chinese are doing this, but how does that measure up against the Europeans and Americans? That to me was, that would have helped me better focus the Chinese contribution in this space. So that part was missing. The other part, uh, uh, you know, as a constructive critique, um, I would have liked to have heard a little bit more from people who went to China, participated in the trainings, and found it objectionable. Not everything you see in China is good, and especially in the media and journalism training, when they come up against the censorship, they come up against the misrepresentation of some of some of the facts that are clearly out there that are well documented. Uh, and 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 what do they walk away with feeling like? Do they necessarily feel better about China when they see? some of the the injustices that happen. And I will say that is by exactly the same as what I would expect for people coming to the United States, that we invite foreigners to come to the U.S. to do these tours. The State Department pays for them. And I'd be interested to hear when they see the racism and the the, the shortcomings of the U.S., how does that impact their, their feelings on that? So those are the two areas that I would have liked to have seen more in the book. But other than that, I don't have too many complaints. Yeah, you know, that's the thing with academic books is they that's, they have to to delineate a, a quite a narrow space for themselves because otherwise you, you know, to, to, to add kind of the full weight of that you would have to add to, to, to provide that context, you add another 200 pages. You know, so so that I think is frequently, yeah. frequently is kind of no, hard choice that academics have to make. Um, in relation to, to kind of not you know, not taking the lessons that China is learning. Um, I would suggest, like, if people are interested, um, Emeka Umeje, I think I'm, I might be messing up his name, but he's a, he's a media scholar who's, who, um, he was at WITS, um, and he now is in Nigeria. Um, he's, yeah, we've his, had him on the show. Yes, we've, we've had, had him had on the show. show. Yeah, like, his work on on the the experiences of African journalists working for, for Chinese state media outlets in, in Kenya is a fantastic kind of, like, resource on, on this particular issue. Also, just to be fair, the Africa China Reporting Project, who helps underwrite our program and our old friend Barry Van Wick, who's at Witts University there, uh, they do bring Chinese journalists and do training sessions to under to better understand uh, what's happening in Africa. So I don't want to leave anybody thinking that this doesn't happen in reverse. I think the key difference, though, is that the scale with which it happens from the Africans going to China rather than the Chinese coming to Africa, that is the key difference. There's a few dozen every year coming to Vitz where there are thousands going to China. So big difference. But it is happening. And I would like to see more Chinese uh, listening to African stakeholders, the same that I would like to see more Americans. This is one of the pieces of, of advice that I, was, I gave on a recent uh, Africa Report podcast when they said, they asked all the guests on the show, what would you advise American policymakers? And I said, listen, stop talking, listen. 
And I think that same advice actually goes for the Chinese as well. So it's unfortunate that so much of these trainings is one way, unidirectional, as uh, Lena pointed out in her book. It would be very helpful for the Chinese to actually listen a little bit more as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, Lena is a subscriber to our newsletter. She gets it every day. She said she starts her day reading it. Um, we would love for you to join Lena and Judd Devermont at CSIS and hundreds of other people inside the Beltway and around the world who read our newsletter every day. Uh, Cobus and I put a whole lot of time into it, and we're capturing every day everything that's being said. So we're going to talk about Lena's book, and then we're going to talk about the conversation related to Lena's book, the reaction to it, what are Africans, Chinese, and everybody else saying about it. And that's the kind of coverage that we're producing. Today, for example, in our newsletter, we shifted gears and we went actually into Iran and the Persian Gulf talking about the new China-Iran deal and the implications on Africa and on foreign policy and the tectonic plates of geopolitics that are now starting to move. So we're broadening out even from beyond Africa in order to show that the lines that divide Africa from the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, and the Mideast are blurring as well. Uh, there's really no other newsletter quite like this, and we're very proud of it, and we would love for you to try it out. You can get two weeks for free. Uh, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. If you decide to sign up, use the promo code podcast, and we'll throw a big discount in just for you. So uh, podcast, that's the, the magic word, and you'll get uh, at least 50 bucks off, I think. So that's a good deal. Uh, so that'll do it. Until then, uh, please stay in touch with us, eric at chinaafricaproject.com, cobis at chinaafricaproject.com. We're always available. And we'll be back here again next week with another edition of the show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.